In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht good blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcast and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Hello and welcome to episode 34 of Scottish Blethers with Liz Lister and Helen Houston. And we've really had quite an exciting week this past week here in Scotland because we've had our elections to the Scottish Parliament. And that made Liz and I think about where did the Scottish Parliament come from? What are we doing here? So we thought we'd use this episode to reflect on the whys and the wherefores and the hows of our Scottish Parliament. So, Liz, what about you? Have you got any thoughts on the matter? Well, I think that when you're trying to explain our current Scottish Parliament to anybody, you've really got to go back and look at the road to where we've arrived at. And if you look at politics in Scotland, it doesn't take you long before you're exploring the bittersweet relationship that we have with our largest and closest neighbour, England. So you know that Scots are fiercely proud, independent. Identity is a very, very strong feature of our politics. For a long time, we've been involved in wars of independence, fighting for our freedom. And in 1328, the Church of Rome recognised us as a free state. We had our own king and most importantly, we had our own Scottish Parliament and remained that way right through up until the Union of the Crowns in 1603, when the two um, nations had the one king, King James VI of Scotland and James I of England. But we still had our separate parliament. So how did it all go wrong, Helen? Well, I think that this was part of a big master plan, this uniting the crowns. That was first of it with all the marriages that had gone on. But I think that in the 1700s, 16 and 1700s, there was a whole lot of things going on and a lot of it just marked by the Scottish identity, the realisation that how we were living in Scotland was very different to how people were living down south in England. So I think that Liz went on through the 1600s and then after the Union of the Crowns, we had the Union of Parliaments, which came about through really financial reasons. When the Scottish Parliament really handed over to the Parliament in Westminster and we had the Union of the Parliaments. Now, Liz, I think you've got some information on the Union of the Parliaments, haven't you, about how the Darien scheme and the equivalent and how all that worked out? Well, in the lead up to the Union, the Act of Union, 
Scotland had got itself into some pretty deep water. It had this plan that it was going to get rich quick by having a colony through which it could trade. But unfortunately, the place it chose for its colony was the Isthmus of Panama. And people poured all their money from across Scotland into this project. And unfortunately, it all went belly up and people went bankrupt. And so although Scotland has still had the strong sense of identity, the rich of Scotland, the nobles, the MPs, the peers, they all sold out. In the words of Robert Burns, were bought and sold for English gold, such a parcel of rogue in a nation. Basically, the wealthy were bribed with pensions and promises and honours and a lot of money. And they sold out. And the people of Scotland were generally not happy about this at all. Oh, no. Think that if anybody's listening and knows anything about the Corrie's folk trio or folk duo, if they listen to some of their songs, they're, they're brilliant at singing A Parcel of Rogues in the Nation. Just very good. But there was other things as well. I think that the benefits the unions brought about was this financial thing, wasn't it? That we were now able to trade with the English colonies, which yeah. had been closed to us prior to that, which was, again, the reason, one of the reasons underlying the Darien scheme going out to Panama. I wonder if the Scots were chasing the sun again, Liz, but they just hadn't realised <laughs> all the other diseases that they might catch. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Not to mention the, the Spanish and the natives who weren't too keen to have us there either. But, you know, fighting, fighting natives, I mean, the for 300 years after the Union, we just got on with it and more and more administration of different functions like health and social care and fisheries and all of that. But I think probably when we were at our most united across Britain was during the early 20th century, where there's nothing that will bring us together more than a common foe. And so through two world wars, the Scots were really at the heart of the British army. And Scotland really felt part of Britain at that time. Yeah, and I was going to say that they were really in their element with the fighting because that's what Scots had done right down through the ages. So they were willing to throw their heart and soul into defending Britain and protecting Britain through their great skill of fighting. But as well as the fighting, I mean, this, this idea of identity was still strong. And so we begin to get the Scottish National Party founded in 1934. And I think you've got a story from Stirling, Helen. Oh, yes, yes. You've got to always come back to Stirling with our Scottish leathers. But yes, the Scottish National Party was formed and it kind of was quietly getting on with it during World War II. But immediately after World War II, there was an election or a by-election which means that there was one seat left that needed to be filled. And when it was fought, it was Dr Robert McIntyre from Stirling who won it. And he was the very first Scottish National Party MP sitting in Westminster. His hold on that was very short because there was a general election about three months after his by-election and he lost his seat there. But he did go on and become provost of Stirling, first made Stirling itself, the council, a Scottish National Party stronghold. It was during the 60s that you realised, the late 50s, early 60s, that you realised that there was a great kind of growth in Scottish nationalism. I remember in Stirling, <laughs> Bannockburn, the Battle of Bannockburn was fought just couple of miles outside Stirling and every year on Bannockburn Day that's the middle of June Midsummer's Day there would be a march through Stirling and a celebration out at the field of Bannockburn 
But in the late 50s, early 60s, the march was our history teacher, Jessie Thompson, and a lone piper would march through the streets of Stirling, just the two of them, and out to the field of Bannockburn. But gradually, as the 60s rolled forward, the 1960s rolled forward, that duo became huge numbers of pipe bands and groups of people marching, stretching the whole way through Stirling out to the field of Bannockburn. And that just showed this rise in desire to be Scotland, that we were something and people were really looking at themselves as being Scottish. And I think that came... And did you march, Helen? I didn't march, but I, I did watch. I did stand by and cheer and, and support them as they <laughs> marched through because it was quite a spectacle. And at, at that time, it made a difference to the, the sheep and the cows that were marching through on, on market day. <laughs> so it was quite different. <laughs> and of course, come the 1960s and the discovery of North Sea Oil, the Scottish National Party really took off and began to become a powerful political force in Scotland. And so we've had, over the years, we've had this division between those that would want complete independence, the nationalists, and those that wanted greater what's called devolution, putting power closer to the people. And over the years, we got that. We got it handed down from Westminster, grudgingly, and power being given closer and closer to the people of Scotland. Until in 1997, we had a referendum. And that referendum was about whether or not there should be a Scottish Parliament. And the results of that were an outstanding Yes, we did want a Scottish Parliament. Can you remember the, those times, Helen? Oh, these were great times. You know that it was a big decision, but it didn't feel a big decision because you just knew that you needed to have people sitting closer to home with an understanding of what was happening in Scotland at the time, and you know to have a Parliament and the the things that they had the power to work on, Liz or that we were voting on, were things that were close to the heart. Things like housing, things like education, these sort of things that people were wanting to be right for Scotland. I think that a number of people had concerns that it was going to be another tier of administration and that it would be costly and that it wouldn't be particularly effective, particularly with the actual building of the parliament, because it went hugely over time and hugely over budget. So it didn't get off to a very good start. That it was a Catalan architect called Enrique Morales who designed uh, the parliament. And it was always meant to be a parliament of the people. And it still tries to retain that today. Yeah, and it's a building. It's funny, I've been looking at photographs of the building. And if any of our listeners have seen the building, they'll know it doesn't look great from the pavement. But if you are up in the air, some of the aerial views are absolutely stunning of the parliament. It was supposed to be sitting there, wasn't it, organically growing out of the strength of Arthur's Seat, the big volcanic hill that sits sort of in Edinburgh. And it was supposed to just be the flower of democracy flowering through to Scotland. And inside is just stunning. Inside has no question about its beauty, has it, Liz? It's lovely. I, I love the building. I love the outside as well, although it's it's highly controversial. It's a love it, hate it thing, but I, I do love it. But what I love about it is that it was supposed to be the parliament of all of the people. And it was supposed to be about coming together across Scotland in consensus and compromise. So the way that the political system was set up was that it was supposed to be hard for any one party to get a majority. 
and therefore you would have to come together in coalition. So it has 129 members, they're called MSPs, and they're elected for five years, and that's what we've been doing. We've been electing our uh, members of the Scottish Parliament. Yes, there's been quite an interesting time and it might be worthwhile kind of thinking about how the election process works and how this idea of making it hard to be a majority. I think we were very fortunate with that in the very beginning of the parliament because there wasn't a majority. It was a kind of a coalition. So any extreme views were immediately tempered by other parties who said, look, quite like the idea, but could you just bring it back a little bit? So we got a very nice, even sort of flow of, of change coming in at that time. Yeah. And just to say a little bit about the electoral system, um, when we went to vote at our polling stations this week, we got two voting papers. One was buff coloured and the other one was purple and we were voting purple women's constituency. So that was the names of people we were voting for our constituency MP, MPs, members of the Scottish Parliament. And there's 73 of those representing the 73 constituencies of Scotland. And that's first past the post. So the person who got the most votes won that constituency seat. But the other one, Helen, the other one was a buff-coloured paper, and that was what were known as the regional seats, the list members. It was the, the parties that were represented on the, on the other sheet. It wasn't names of people. So you voted for a party. So the remaining seats would be given to a party, and then the party would choose from their list uh, who would be the MSP for that area, for that region. And that was that was about... Oh, about a yard long, that piece of paper, or sorry, a metre long, that piece of paper. It was very long with all the parties on it. It was, and the length of time that they took to count all the votes was very long this year as well, because, of course, it had to be socially distanced when they were counting the, the votes. And so it took us a little while. We got the constituency votes first and we knew that the Scottish National Party had the majority of the constituency votes. But we had to wait quite a wee while until the regional list votes came through and there was great discussion and great great consideration given to it as to whether the SNP, the Scottish National Party, were going to have a majority. They did have a majority in 2011 but remember that it's very difficult to get that majority and so in the 2016 election they were too short and we waited and waited to find out and eventually we've had the result that this time they fall one short of an outright majority. Yes, but the, the Green Party who have said right from the outset that they would support the SNP, the Scottish Nationalist Party, they have now got, I can't remember how many seats they've got, but they're practically all from the list and they will support. So I'm very pleased to hear that Nicola Sturgeon, who is the, the leader of the Scottish Nationalist Party, she was on the Andrew Marr show, a, a political show on television this morning, and she was saying that you know her very first her her job as first minister with the parliament now is to get the country back on its feet after covid and that i think would give everybody a big big sigh of relief that the focus of the parliament is going to be get the country back on its feet 
And of course, the other big issue that comes to the fore and which all our visitors are always interested in is will there be another referendum for independence? And this is the big question. I mean, just to reflect back to the 2014 referendum, the majority of people, it was quite clear in the initial polls, were not in favour of independence. What they wanted was what was called Devo Max. Now, Devo Max was increased devolution of powers because the one thing that really the Scottish Parliament want additional authority over is fiscal powers, particularly tax raising. Now, they, they have all the powers over the devolved issues, but they don't have the ability to raise money. They get their money through the Barnett formula. Do you want to say a wee bit about the Barnett formula, Helen? Yes, the Barnett formula is basically a formula that's worked out, or oh, by some weird and wonderful method, I'm sure, but worked out to identify what proportion of the overall pot of gold that goes into the UK, the United Kingdom funds. And that pot of gold is then divided up proportionally to Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and England. And that's known as the Barnet formula. And Scotland has traditionally had a higher per capita than the than England, definitely. And Liz, I can't remember why that is that they get the higher per capita. There is a reason for it. Yeah, it's because the first thing is that things are are different in Scotland. We have more health problems, so we have more costs on our National Health Service in Scotland, also more social problems, but it's also economies of scale because it's a much smaller population in Scotland. We only have 5 million people. But nobody really understands why the Scots get more, and this is the bone of contention, that um, the English say, oh, you whinging Scots, you get more than us anyway, and you're always coming cap in hand wanting more. And the Scots say, well, it's our money, it's our oil, our taxes that are going to pay it. We should have our, our own say about our own money. But I think it was worked out in the first place that the formula has been worked out and, and decided and agreed on a very equitable and fair footing. But it's just what, what were the criteria within that footing? But I think that what you've said, Liz, is correct. We need it. That's why. I think that there's no doubt, you know, the majority of economic pundits would say that Scotland is better currently under the union, but it's whether or not with its own authority to, to raise taxes and whatever, the, how it would do. This is the, the basis of the independence question. And this was what raged through 2014 as we approached the polls. Initially, they had wanted, there had been an argument that there was a third option. So there was independence, union, and the third option would have been Devo Max, which would have been in this increased devolution of fiscal powers. But at the time, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom was David Cameron and the First Minister of Scotland was Alex Salmond. And they came to an agreement that it would be a clear binary choice. You're in or you're out. Now, they both had their own reasons for doing this. David Cameron thought that not for a minute would people vote for an independent Scotland. But Alex Salmond realised that the, the majority of people who were in favour of independence were amongst the young. And so he got agreement that the age to vote would be lowered from 18 to 16. And people said, this is ridiculous. What do 16-year-olds know about voting and politics? But it was amazing, wasn't it? Oh, it was the most fascinating time to be in Scotland, that lead up to that referendum, because 
by golly. And I have to say that I was one of the ones, you know, of the older generation, if you like, who thought, oh, what are these youngsters are just going to be thinking of, you know, the film Braveheart and Mel Gibson and have their faces painted blue and white and go around shouting freedom. But, oh, they were terrific, the youngsters. They just were like terriers with a bone. They, in the debates, they were questioning these experienced members of parliament and politicians. And as experienced politicians, they had learned very well how to avoid answering a question. But these youngsters, they would not let them away with it. They just said, no, that's not my question. So stop speaking. I, this is my question. Please answer it. They were so good. And I take my hat off to all the teachers in the schools who gave up time in the classes to help the children understand and to investigate and study and read as much as they could. So they fully understood what the referendum was about so they could make a good informed choice. But in Scotland, it wasn't just the youngsters who were debating. It was everywhere from church women's guilds to boys clubs to the men on the golf course, the women in the tea rooms. That's a bit of a sexist thing, isn't it? Men on the golf course and women in tea rooms. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was everybody throughout the land. The conversation, the discussion was the independence referendum. It was a very high level of debate and it involved youngsters in politics, which you're getting people to engage is great. And it wasn't a knock the English. It wasn't an anti-English sentiment. It was people thinking about their future. What is the best thing for Scotland? And taking it very, very seriously. And as I said, the polls initially showed that there was not a majority for independence. And because of that, I think it's fair to say that the Westminster government were complacent they didn't put a lot of time and effort into the campaign because they thought it just was, was a non-starter. And so they ran a negative campaign. They told the Scots that if they were independent, they couldn't be part of Europe. There was questions over what currency they would have. They couldn't have the pound. And if anybody knows a Scot, they'll know that if there's one thing guaranteed to get a Scots hackles up, it's to tell them that they can't do something. And so bit by bit, they came round and they said, well, we'll show you. And so the pendulum began to swing and the polls began to show a move towards independence. And so on the eve of independence and the days and weeks leading up to it, it was getting close to being 50-50. And so suddenly Westminster were sitting up and taking this seriously. And that's right. And the big guns from Westminster, the, the prime minister and the leaders of the all the parties came up to Scotland. It was almost like a scene from a spaghetti western as they kind of marched up four or five abreast coming into Scotland. And basically, they, they were promising the earth. They just could not have the realisation that Scotland might split from the Union and and the implications of that was beginning to dawn on these on the powers that be. And they came up and they promised what almost became Devo Max. Yeah, it was a promise. And a lot of people, and probably I count myself as one of them, sort of said, well, they're giving us, we're staying in the union, but we're getting a lot greater powers in Scotland. So voted to stay in the union. And that's what swung it. I think if they hadn't come up and made their promises and their speeches, I think it would have been an independence vote, wouldn't it? I don't know whether it was the promise of the increased devolution of fiscal powers or whether it was just fear the fear of the unknown. But whatever the reason, when the outcome was announced, independence was rejected by a substantial margin. It was rejected by 45% in favour of independence and 55% against. 
Yeah, which if you think about it, it's just almost half of the country sitting today said that we actually wanted to be independent. But Liz, it was quite interesting because on Thursday for the vote, I went with my with my grandson. That was his first time to vote. He wasn't old enough to vote in the, the previous election or in the referendum, but that was his first time voting. And he's just 18. And my granddaughter, she went, she's just turned 17. So they're just seeing the youngsters wanting to go and you know, joining in the process of, of democracy. Yeah, I think it's been a huge success lowering the age to 16 because it really has been getting people engaged. And we have had large turnouts this past election. I don't know what the figure was, but we did have a good turnout in spite of very heavy rain on the day. So, you know, so after that, after the referendum, both sides had agreed that they would stand by the decision, whatever that decision was, and that we wouldn't keep coming back and having another referendum. It would be a once in a generation occurrence. But there was a clause put in, and that clause was unless there was some substantive issue at which the Scots were of a different opinion to the rest of the United Kingdom. And of course, nobody expected that to happen. But then along came Brexit. Yeah. And actually, Liz, until you sort of pointed that out to me, I was not aware of that because I, in my head, I was thinking, well, it's only once in a generation. And that's what we said we would do. And this is not next that they're talking about is not going to be once in a generation. But Brexit is a huge deal in Scotland and every single region throughout the whole of Scotland voted to stay in the European Union. But now and now we're out of it against our wishes. So that is fairly substantive, Liz. It is. And that's why this election was so important, because it was felt that coming off the back of COVID, Scotland had very much gone its own way, as had Wales uh, and Northern Ireland, um, with England going its, its way as well. And there was a very, very strong groundswell of opinion behind the First Minister, who it was felt had handled it all very well. And again, it was this idea of we do things differently in Scotland. Yeah, and I think that the way we handled it, and, and our first minister, you know, Nicola Sturgeon, she was on television every day since last March, you know, telling us, bringing us up to date on a daily basis of the situation regarding COVID and infections and hospitals, and now regarding vaccinations and things. She has worked tirelessly, and I think as a leader, she's proved herself, and I think if she can lead as well to bring us out of COVID, Scotland will be in a good place to perhaps even consider another referendum within the five years of the Parliament. We vote for the Parliament, the one that we've just voted for is a five-year term. So we know that we have five years and we'll just be able to know by the mid to end of that how we are on, how well we are recovering from the impact of last year and this year. But of course, as COVID was, uh, as the pandemic was striking, there was a, a groundswell of opinion that swung towards independence again. And so people were watching this election very closely to see if the Scottish National Party would get a majority again. And with the results out, we know that they fell one short of that. But as we said earlier, when we combine the votes of the Scottish Greens, who are also a pro-independence party, there is a majority now for independence. But it's a very strange situation that we find ourselves in. We have a polarisation. Conservatives grow stronger and stronger. They're a unionist party in England. 
In Scotland, we have the Scottish Nationalist Party. And in Wales, we have the Labour Party growing. So we're becoming divided across the union. Yeah. It's been wiped out in Scotland with the growth of the Scottish National Party. And Boris Johnson has said that whether or not a referendum is held is a constitutional matter, which is reserved by Westminster. And he said, basically, over my dead body, there's no way we're going to get a referendum. And of course, the response to that from the pro-independence parties is that nobody can deny the will of the people if there's a majority in favour of it there has to be a referendum and there's talks of a wildcat unauthorised. And I think if they do that and they get a result, I don't know how anybody, Westminster Parliament or anybody could say, well, we're not playing ball, you're not getting your independence. That could be a oh, fun and games to come, Liz, I think. Absolutely. We'll just have to see how it is. But I think overall, this whole thing, the lead up to and the reasons for the Scottish Parliament, why we have a Scottish Parliament, you know, what's been happening since we've had a Scottish Parliament, the referendums, the various things that have gone on, there has totally increased the engagement. We had got to a stage in politics in Scotland, at least I, I think, where we weren't interested you know, we're fed up with the politicians, we're fed up with this, but just the engagement in the last sort of 10 years or so has been fantastic. And I hope that we all manage to to keep that going, that great engagement and, and interest, and interest in our own future, I suppose it is, isn't it? So if we, if we stay within the union, Liz, what's, what, what are the benefits for that? Well, I was reading an article in the Telegraph today, which, which, well, which, which, Put it that you know the government in Westminster are so concerned about a, a breakup of the union that they're going to be throwing money at Scotland and Wales to try and and retain the union, and so I, I think some form of federalism where this further devolution, this ongoing devolution, but also promoting the benefits because undoubtedly that Scotland benefits from pooling and sharing resources. You know that the strengths of the union are definitely there for all to see. The, the UK is the major trading partner of Scotland. So, you know, we have to work in tandem with it. But I think we have to recognise that, that the issues are different in Scotland and we have to be given the autonomy to deal with our own issues. Yes, I think that's a, a very good point. And we see that already with things like healthcare, how we have slight differences in our the emphasis in the National Health Service and and things like that in our education system is different, our legal system is different. So having having people in the country dealing with these things is a great benefit. But this, in myself, not sure about the, the benefits of independence, total independence. I think I do like the idea of federalism because I think that way we can remake, retain our identity, which is where we came in, Liz, the great identity of the Scots, retain our identity but still be part of a bigger picture. Yep, I think it's a heart or head thing and it's a, a difficult time. You know, this is a sombre Scottish blethers today because it is a difficult time for Scotland. It is a, a, a time where perhaps the common enemy is COVID and debt and trying to pull together to get our find our way out of this. Yes, and I think and I think that, that really is the thing that it's, it's um maybe been a good kind of breathing point, a very difficult time, but it's been time for people to stop, take stock and decide what's the best way forward. But I think, Liz, our way forward from here is probably looking at our word of the week. 
Yes, let's levitate. Let's levitate. We've had enough of the sombre blethers. Very interested to hear what our listeners think. You know that it's a very a topic that's asked about a lot. You know, some people say, "Well, you couldn't possibly be independent. You, you know, you've never been independent. We were. We were a, an independent country, and we look at other countries like Ireland." and smaller countries and think we could do it so ahead of the heart thing I'll continue to debate and it'll be something that we go on with for a while oh, but moving be. to word of the week right I'm, I'm losing track of what words we've had and what words we haven't I'm going to have to go back but we've got new listeners coming in all the time so if we recap probably it's not going to do anybody any harm but because we might have used some of these I'll give you a few <laughs> all of the debate and the political discord and all of that that's been going on Nicola and Boris coming in fisticuffs and all the rest of it what a stushy <laughs> what a rammy it's a bit of a stramash it's a mess that's the words, three words of the week, three words rolled into one. What about you, Helen? Well, I was just thinking that we've, I mentioned that Nicola Sturgeon, our first minister, has been appearing on television almost every day for the last year or so um, in terms of the COVID. And one of the things she has is her peery heels. Now, her peery heels, peery is a Scots word for a spinning top and Peary heels are shoes with very high, like if you think of the old-fashioned stiletto heels. And here's a nice wee poem that maybe explains it to you. This is one that you used to use when you did skipping. Oh, there she goes, peary heels and pointy toes. Look at her feet, she thinks she's neat. There she goes, peary heels and pointy toes. Look at her feet, she thinks she's neat. And Nicola Sturgeon has the most incredible peary heels and... Um, Liz has been posting things on our Facebook page with Jane Godley voicing over Nicola's words. And one of the things she finishes in, oh, my feet are killing me. My feet are killing me. <laughs> so with her peery heels. <laughs> I can just see you dancing down still in High Street behind that beaten drum with your Scottish National Party, Helen, and your wee peery heels. <laughs> my wee peery what an image to end on. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, right. that's it for another week. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta ta the moo from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. <laughs>